This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Let's get right into the Business Week agenda now. As Charlie mentioned, we have a lot to talk about. Gina Martin-Adams is with us, Chief Equity Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us on the phone from New Jersey. Also in New Jersey is is where we find Dave Wilson, Stocks Editor for Bloomberg. He is there in the Garden State. So, Dave, give us the brief contours of this market. We heard some of the top-line numbers from Charlie. What do we need to know about this trade? Well, technology stocks holding up relatively well, and the broader market, not so much. I mean, Charlie didn't talk about airlines, so I will. I mean, you got United leading a decline in the group, you know, warning employees that what's happening with the coronavirus in the South and West is going to be an issue in terms of people getting on planes. Mm -hmm. Uh, The airline said it's seen a drop in bookings, especially in Newark, New Jersey, just up the road from yours truly. So, you know, you've got United shares at the moment, uh, the worst performers in the S&P 500 down more than 6%, and you see the other carriers going along for the ride, American, Delta, and Southwest, all lower here. So, you know, that's a concern. You know, on the other hand, I mean, you see uh, some stories related to the coronavirus in terms of uh, potential vaccines that are really getting attention. Uh, front and center in that score is Novavax. Right. Stocks up 35% after uh, the company got a billion six from the U.S. government to develop its uh, right. COVID-19 vaccine. So that, that, that definitely gets your attention. Yeah, that definitely gets a stock moving. Let's bring in Gina, because Gina, I feel like things that might get the markets moving, maybe in a good way, maybe in a bad way, depends on how the earnings season uh, comes out. We've got to get ready for earnings again. Yeah, totally agree that earnings is a potential catalyst for stocks in addition to potential policy changes coming at the end of July in the form of maybe another fiscal package or at least an extension of unemployment benefits. Um, The earnings season is absolutely top of mind for us as the next potential catalyst for stocks. You know, I I will say this. uh, It's hard to get much lower in terms of expectations. Analysts are forecasting a 45% drop in earnings on a year-ago basis, which it's just a, an, an extraordinary decline in, in history. I, I don't think you'd find a single quarter in which we've seen such an extended, extensive decline. Um, nonetheless, uh, that, that low bar should make for a relatively easy beat. The question is whether or not beating such a low bar will be enough for stock prices. And I happen to think that it may not be enough. What you actually probably need to see is also a little bit of visibility emerge from company management in, with respect to the outlook. Uh, you know, one of the most devastating impacts of the first quarter was companies just absolutely yeah. slashed all guidance and just yeah. said, we're not even going to tell you anything because we don't know anything. So to the extent that some of these cyclically oriented companies, some of the high volatility type of stocks can come out with some commentary to suggest that, hey, maybe we will survive. We have enough liquidity to right. get through the next couple of quarters and we'll move into 2021 and things will start to look better. That could be really positive for the equity market. 
Well, and Gina, to to that exact point, I mean, you start to wonder whether some CEOs are going to want to start to differentiate themselves, right? To say, look, we've made the right moves or we have the right liquidity. We've tapped the right resources because I think, this is just my opinion, that investors are going to maybe not put up much longer with this idea of like, yeah, we just don't know what's going to happen. It's like, well, yeah, we, we don't know what's going to happen, but it's kind of your job to tell us what you think is going to happen. Right. Yeah, exactly. And the, I think that the smart managements will actually take the opportunity to kitchen sink as much as they can in the second quarter. Yeah. So, you know, you've got a lot of potential volatility with, yeah, maybe things weren't as bad as we thought, but hey, we can take the opportunity to take this charge and kind of move past the second quarter. Everybody's expecting so much weakness anyway things will inevitably get better in the second half. Well, now maybe we can disclose just how much better they think, yeah. you know, we think they'll get. And even if companies are saying, you know, we're not anticipating a huge improvement in economic growth. Well, okay, but you are anticipating at least some improvement, right, relative to second quarter. We know that second quarter was when all the shutdowns happened. We're no longer completely shut down. Right. What does your reality look right. like in a not completely shut down economy? And can we extrapolate that out into the future? So I do think the expectations bar is very different. Um, right. And, and, I think and it's that fair. expectation is really about 2021 more than anything. Right. And I think it's fair to ask CEOs because they've got to make decisions whether they need money, whether they need to let go workers. So they've got to be having some kind of forecasting going on because they've got to make decisions. So, Well, uh, absolutely. And even for the companies that are really strong, what yeah. are you doing with all that cash? Right. Because one of the interesting things that happened in the first quarter is cash stores built tremendously. We talk a lot about cash flow declines, but cash stores also built up. What are you going to do with that going forward is a huge question that nobody's talking about. All right, Gina Martin-Adams, thank you so much. Chief Equity Strategist, of course, for Bloomberg Intelligence. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Well, this is one of those rub-your-hands-together interviews, yes, Carol, totally. because I'm so excited to catch up again with Craig Gordon, Washington Bureau Chief Executive Editor for Bloomberg. Joining us on the phone from the nation's capital and its environs. So, Craig, I am tempted to just talk about YouTube radio and the return to <laughs> SiriusXM that both you and I are so happy about. But we have other business to discuss. And I guess I would start by asking you, as you look across all that your reporters are working on, all the inputs you're getting. What's the most important story in Washington right now? Uh, I think the most important story right now actually is Donald Trump's um, handling of the current situation regarding uh, things like the Confederate flag and some of these racial issues. Obviously, uh, there's the stimulus, there's the virus, there's a lot going on, but we are seeing a real window into Trump's psyche um, as he starts to look at the same poll numbers we're looking at that showed him kind of, uh, it, you know, blinking red across the board. Most of the swing states right now suggest they'd be going to Biden. The country right track, wrong track number, which is one of the main numbers that people look at, you know, in terms of uh, the president's prospects of reelection are all going, the arrows are all in the wrong direction for Trump. <clears throat> and instead of, you know, finding a message to try to either unite the country during COVID or, uh, you know, some of the some of the racial healing that might be available to him, he's actually going in the complete opposite direction. He's, he talked. Uh, he talked again this morning uh, a little bit about the Confederate flag. Uh, that was a tweet from yesterday. Actually, he sent Kellyanne Conway out to defend his comments on that. Um, obviously, we all saw the speeches from Friday and Saturday night, where he's standing at Mount Rushmore, a real chance again to kind of try to have some unifying words. Uh, you know, standing under the, the visages of our, our greatest presidents, and really went went pretty pretty negative. So I, I think a lot of times with Trump, what you see is what you get. Um, 
he is not a man who has a pretty good has a very good poker face, and I think he's worried about losing. And I think the more he's worried about losing, he's going to start lashing out in these you know in these frankly pretty ugly ways uh, as he tries to keep Joe Biden uh, down. Does he not want to be president? Oh, you know, I won't put him on the couch quite that far. That's always been the question, right? No one's more surprised than Donald Trump on election night 2016. Um, but he, he definitely, I, I feel like, you know, he's a, he's a politician who kind of won with sort of one good trick, and that trick was Muslim ban, it was the wall, it was us versus them, it was sort of, uh, you know, speaking to the so-called downtrodden Americans and kind of stoking some of those darker impulses in the American psyche. I, I think that's how he got to be the president the first time. He's the president now. A president has a lot of tools at their disposal. There could be virus things or, again, some of the racial hearing, even just economic um, economic message, I'm going to bring the economy back, which he sort of says a lot but doesn't do much. Um, and instead he's kind of going back to that one trick over and over, and I, and I would respectfully argue even perhaps in an even slightly darker way. Um, the, the problem for Trump is that a lot of the country's not really with him. I mean, you know, he won by the slimmest of majorities, wasn't even a majority plurality last time. Um, and even some of those people are scared about the virus. They don't like the way things are going with the economy. We know the seniors who were pretty strong for him in 2016 are, are kind of starting to drift away. And so, I mean, you know, we all know Donald Trump's advisors have a pretty poor record of getting him to change his ways. But boy, this does not feel like he's playing a winning hand right now. And yet mm. he keeps doubling down and doubling down and doubling down. Well, Craig, you know, we just have a headline crossing the Bloomberg about California seeing 6,090 new virus cases versus about 6,600 for the 14-day average. You mm -hmm. know, we constantly are watching these virus headlines, and a lot of states that are very important to the president, you know, we're seeing cases spike and the problem getting bigger and bigger. How problematic is his handling of the virus ultimately to him come November? Yeah, and this to me is a bit of, was sort of the mystery of it. We had a terrific story out by Gregory Cordy and Mike Dorning just yesterday on the Bloomberg Terminal talking about how in the in the very states where the cases are up, Trump's numbers are down. It's almost a, like a one-to-one -one correlation where the cases are up, the numbers are down. This isn't blue states like California, which you mentioned, New York, New Jersey, which obviously had its share of problems. This is Florida. This is Arizona. This is places he won and, and really needs to win again um, if he has any chance of all of getting back into the White House. So, it, again, it does seem to sort of even run counter to that. These are his voters. These are his states. This is Trump country. And they are suffering right now with the virus. And yet they look to the White House, they look to the president, and they're really, I mean, Trump almost barely mentions the virus anymore. Obviously, we went from the extreme of those nightly two- and three-hour-long briefings to now he barely will say the word, you know, V-I-R-U-S. Um, yeah. And I'm sorry, I think some of the voters in those places, again, maybe they don't want to wear a mask. Maybe they wish they could go back to the bar. And whatever people are feeling right now, we're all a little antsy. I'm in week 17. I work from home. I, I, you know, I feel their pain. But I do think they're looking to the White House and looking to the leader of the country for some answers to help their states and their friends and neighbors, and they're seeing nothing. And yeah. that's a problem for Trump. Well, and Craig, it, it's also interesting to see a, a shift in tone, it feels like, over the last week from whether it's Mitch McConnell or even Vice President Pence saying, wear a mask. I, I mean, it sounds so ridiculous to point that out. And at the same time, <laughs> right. it's notable, right? That Yeah, we, I mean, we have a story that works right now on Pence's comments because I picked up a little bit on that just as you did over the weekend, that even Mike Pence, who's the loyalist loyalist, obviously carried a lot of water for this president, is, is kind of – ever so slightly edging away from him on the question of a mask, that it's okay to wear a mask again, Mitch McConnell. No one's idea of a flaming liberal is out there saying the same thing. So, right, it's like, that's what strikes me, and I think that made me answer your question the way I did at the top, the top here, of well, what's the most important thing? It's both that Trump is doubling down on what feels to me, and I think the poll suggests is kind of a losing message, but he's starting to lose 
his loyalists. When Mike yeah. Pence is starting to talk a little differently than Donald Trump, boy, that's a, that's a pretty notable day. Mitch McConnell, some of these other folks, and that's where the trouble really is right now for President Trump. So, Craig, uh, we've got a new tell-all book from a Trump insider. What do we know about this book? So, right, this is a, this just got uh, came out today or is being released today. Eric Larson, one of our uh, legal team reporters, managed to get his hands on it, so good for him. Uh, this is Mary Trump. This is President Trump's niece. So she got to see a lot of up-close-and-personal uh, the interaction mostly between uh, the book seems to center folk a lot on the interaction between Trump and his father, obviously a Queens um, real estate developer, um, just like the president turned into. Um, and really, it's it, it's hard to read. Um, obviously, we all feel you, everybody always feels like you know the president a little bit, you know, just because uh, you see the person so often. But boy, you're getting a very ugly um, look inside the family dynamic here, where Fred Trump, um, his father, just drove Donald very hard. Um, you know, she accuses him of essentially withholding his love and support. Forward and turning turning Donald Trump one of the ones that left out of me was she's a uh, she herself is a clinical psychologist so she's not just a you know sort of an armchair person here asserts that her uncle has all nine clinical criteria for being a narcissist so um, for anyone who might have thought that about the president uh, there's a clinical psychologist who got to live with him you know off and on for many many years um, making that same diagnosis it's pretty it's pretty chilling stuff. And even the idea, and, and this hits a little uh, in the in the zeitgeist right now, this notion that he paid someone to take the SAT for him. I mean, right. all these things just, you know, it, it's a little bit of a, a, a drip, drip, drip that turns into something more than that, it feels like, Craig. Yeah, that's how I tend to view these books. Like, I, I'm not sure how many people sort of sit and read the whole canon of Donald Trump from, you know, Woodward's first book all the way up to Bolton and now, and now this book. But I do think they tend to... Like you say, little details of them sort of break through the zeitgeist. In this case, maybe as he paid someone to take the SAT and to get into Wharton, which he's bragged about almost every day of his life since then. And with the Bolton book, I think it was, you know, that he had asked uh, uh, the Chinese President Xi to buy a bunch of agricultural products to help him get reelected. You know, again, a very sort of picture of a president literally bartering his own reelection with the leader of a of a country that is certainly no friend of the United States, certainly a rival. Um, so, so I don't know that they, you know, like again, you have to read the whole library of them to form an opinion about Trump, but the little pieces that come out, it's another brick on the pile for people who, again, are already looking at the president with questions about, um, I, I, think the, I think the virus was particularly damaging to Donald Trump in this way, in that um, presidents expect their, uh, Americans expect their president to be sort of empathetic. You know, yeah. Bill Clinton got, became a little bit of a punchline, you know, I feel your pain, but I, I do think that's what Americans look to the president to do at a time of a national crisis or a disaster, uh, in Clinton's case, the Oklahoma City bombing, you know, more recently, obviously, for Trump, the virus. I think you could and put Bush all the post words 9/11, right? I mean, I think we all remember those images and that video of George W. Bush at Ground Zero, Craig. Perfect example, and and that is that moment when the president becomes bigger than the person, bigger than the job, becomes a, a national, you know, figure, a national healer, a national consoler. And I, I think you could take every word Donald Trump said in sympathy to people who caught COVID and put it on a single page. I mean, I remember watching those briefings and just being struck night after night after night of how he just even the most cursory sort of perfunctory words of sympathy or empathy or concern almost did not pass his lips. And again, I guess if, if Mary Trump were here, she'd tell us he's a, he's a narcissist. So that's, you know, that's they tend to only see themselves and not the rest of the world. But I, I really do think the virus in that way exposed Trump just in, in a really sort of brutal way that the person that he is, you know, Again, sometimes you want the president to be a tough guy and different yeah. things. Well, I think right now people are looking for a little bit of empathy, a little bit of human compassion. Right. They are not finding it in Donald Trump. 
Yeah, considering that, you know, the nation has been lo- in lockdown and everybody kind of experiencing all of this together, you certainly probably can make the case for saying you want a president who understands that. If you put it all together, though, it takes me, Craig, to another story that's among the most read by Jonathan Bernstein about, um, oh, not that one, I'm sorry, it's another story, but it talks about um, Nick Wadham, about the pandemic response turning America first into America last. I do wonder how, if you add all of this up, what it does for the United States on a global stage. Yeah, that was. Uh, I'm, I'm really proud of that story. Nick Wadham is our State Department reporter, mm-hmm. and he um, he kind of he kind of observed. You know, again, uh, Trump came to office on a travel ban, keeping out some of the Muslim um, nations. Well, now the U.S. is so the subject of a travel ban of right. a sort, as the EU says, Americans can't travel there because of our high rates of the virus. And he kind of goes through the story and lays out all the examples of how, in, a, in again, a time of a global crisis, the United States often would be the leader, sort of pulling the rest of the world along and such. Right. And in this case, we're, we're kind of the laggard, um, and people are, you know, their suspicion of Trump grows ever deeper. I, I think this is actually a, an issue that would happen even if Joe Biden gets elected. Yeah. That the world has learned we're, all, we're you know, they're always just one election away from the yeah. United States turning inward in the way that Donald Trump did, and yep. maybe Joe Biden would try to reverse that. But Absolutely. I don't think these feelings, these feelings are right. going away quickly. Craig, uh, got to leave it there. Unfortunately, great to catch up with you, D.C. Bureau Chief and Executive Editor Craig Gordon. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Now, we, Jason, have turned to her before to hear about her firsthand experiences of dealing with COVID-19. Her stories have been featured in the magazine. Back with us is Bloomberg News Financial Investigations senior writer Stephanie Baker. She's joining us uh, once again on the phone from London, and she has taken several antibody tests before she could trust the results. So let's get into uh, her experience here. Uh, Stephanie, it is good to have you back with us. Tell us about this latest story. You had five antibody body tests that you've taken before you could really kind of trust the results, right? That's right. Um, a couple of months ago, I took uh, four antibody tests, those finger prick uh, antibody tests that were on the market at the time, that many people had questioned their reliability, um, and I got conflicting results. I got two positives and two negatives and sort of gave up, even though I had cross-checked them with various other doctors and nurses who had tested positive for COVID, so I was left bit confused about my status. When um, some of the newer tests came out that are based on an intravenous blood draw, um, they appear to be more accurate and more sensitive. Uh, so I finally got around to taking one of these tests, the Abbott test, which is, does have some pretty good data behind it, and I was indeed positive. And I was somewhat relieved that I figured I have three positives versus two negatives, and one of the positives seems to be more reliable and has some pretty hard science behind it. So having studied this, Stephanie, I have to ask you, why is this so hard? I I agree. It shouldn't be this hard. And I think it's hard because we are still learning so much about this virus. Um, You know, I think some of the tests we're trying to figure out what is the best way to go about um, you know, finding the most effective antibodies, you know, is it against the spike protein or is it against the nucleocapsid, which is another kind of antibody that the COVID-19 generates. Um, and I think there was a lot of time wasted on these finger prick tests, which some of them can be good and reliable, but they're just not as sensitive as the intravenous blood draw. The blood draw is a hard thing to roll out uh, on a mass scale, uh, it's more expensive. It's more time-consuming, um, you know. But the data seems to indicate that this 
is the better approach. We still don't know what it means to have antibodies, and I think that's the biggest problem. There's indications that it, it does provide some protection. We don't know how long that lasts, um, and I think that's the real question mark over these tests. What, is it, what, is, what does it really mean to be positive? That's such a good point, because I think, Stephanie, when we first started talking about the antibody test, we were like, okay, this is the holy grail. We're going to find out if you had it, and then you're okay, and then you've got some immunity, and you can go back out into the world. And now we're realizing it's not so easy. And I do wonder, how did it kind of change your psyche in terms of, okay, you know, or you think you know, right, because you've done five tests, and the majority are saying one thing. I mean, how did, has it impacted your world in terms of how you go back and, and reenter? I think it has made me more relaxed about the risk of contracting it, for sure. Um, you know, I'm, I'm still being cautious because I think that's the responsible thing to do. Um, but I, I do look at my risks of, say, contracting it by going into a store or um, even a restaurant as less than it would have been otherwise. Um, so, you know, but I think, I think I do have a responsibility to be careful because we just don't have those long-term studies showing what it means. We don't know how long it lasts. I, I, you know, my antibodies might fade. We don't know. Mm. And until those studies are done, I, I need to be the sort of responsible pandemic citizen and, and be careful and cautious around social distancing. So, Stephanie, in your real life as a Bloomberg reporter, I know that you are uh, very knowledgeable about Wall Street and the city there in London and all of the gymnastics that these big firms, especially the financial firms, are going through in terms of getting people back to work. Look at this through that lens for us, if you can, because you do that so nicely in your story, and what role the antibody tests and sort of testing in general is going to play in terms of getting back to office. Yeah, so I thought I would check with some of the big banks and figure out if, if they were using these antibody tests. Um, I only found Credit Suisse Group is one who is offering antibody testing to its employees in, in Switzerland. It's looking at rolling it out to other hubs, but it's not. It's only for people coming back to the office, and they're not requiring them to disclose their results. It's more of a sort of peace of mind perk for employees. Um, other banks have been more cautious. I mean, you know, I think there are some, you know, potential legal issues that maybe they're they're wary of. Um, you know, I think it's I think it's um, you know not exactly the silver bullet to get people back in the office. Um, and, you know, I think it's a sort of, they're taking a sort of wait and see approach, um, you know, to see what kind of data comes out. I mean, we do need to remember antibody testing is used to, to, to take blood plasma from people mm-hmm. that can be used to treat COVID right. patients with right. those antibodies. So they're not, it's not a meaningless test. It does tell us something I do wish we would know more about what it tells us, and I think we will find out in the coming months. Well, were you approached? I am curious after, you know, your testing. I mean, I wonder what that process is. Do do hospitals approach people once they know about somebody who's had it and has potentially the antibodies? I'm just curious about kind of that supply chain, if you will. Yeah, in the U.K., I know that um, there are various researchers advertising for people to come in Mm -hmm. and donate blood plasma. Some people are using it as a backdoor way of getting an antibody test for free. Um, And, uh, you know, uh, uh, others are, I think, offering it um, or looking for potential donors uh, amongst healthcare workers, you know, where infections have been higher. 
Um, so, I mean, it's still an evolving uh, science, um, and you know, I think you know, it, I think there, there'll it, we'll probably see more research coming out about that and the effects of using antibodies to treat patients uh, and and in the future. I do feel like it's a piece of the puzzle, right? Totally, yeah, an important Definitely. piece for sure. And we really appreciate your reporting and candidly, your yeah. candor and your willingness to sort of share this not just with us but with uh, all of our readers and viewers and listeners, Stephanie Baker. Really appreciate it. Financial Investigations, senior writer for Bloomberg, joining us on the phone from London. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Well, Jason, we know American Express has been involved big time in helping out the small business owner for years. They created that Small Business Saturday, I think, back in 2010. Um, today's Business Week Small Business Survival Guide, we've got Amex added again with a perk to its cardholders. Let's bring in Kate Crater. She's food editor at Bloomberg Pursuit. She's on the phone in New York City with a little bit more on what's going on. Kate Crater, Jason, I love when you join us. How are you? Me too. Hi, you guys. Very happy to hear your voices. Likewise. So tell us what's going on. We want to talk about restaurants in a moment, but tell us about what Amex is up to. Yeah, Amex is doing something nice. They have committed over $200 million to a perk for cardholders, all cardholders, and it's um, up to a $50 benefit if you shop small. So for every $10 you spend, um, you get 50, you, you get five, not 50, <laughs> that would be great. For every $10 <laughs> you spend, you get $5 back up to 10 times. So it could be a $50 perk. Um, for using your American Express cards to support small businesses, including restaurants, and um, that's a good thing. And so what's the idea? I mean, I think I understand the idea, but, I mean, the idea is that restaurants, they they need help here, Kate. Yeah. Boy, they need all the help. They really need all the help um, you can give them. And so there are, and most of them are, so many of them are independently owned and small and so if you use your American Express card, including, including Resi, which is now American Express's restaurant reservation platform, they have sort of moved to doing at-home delivery packages. And you can use your card and order in food and get a $5 discount. I think it's great. I think it's great because I think, you know, it's something, Kate, Jason and I have talked about this since we've been in lockdown. We've we've thought about the local businesses, whether especially in terms of restaurants who deliver, to really try and reach out to them to support them because it's really been tough for them in terms of lifelines. Um, and we forget, I think, as a community that, you know, so many of those restaurants that are out there, they are truly, you know, small businesses. They really are. And, you know, I got to do actually a story about how Chinese restaurants, like one small bit of good news in, um, in all the bad news about restaurants is how, how well neighborhood Chinese restaurants um, are coming back, in part because neighborhood supports delivery. And one place, Jing Fong on the Upper West Side, was doing 100% of the business they did um, on a rainy night that they would have done if their 70-seat dining room had been open. So... It wow. makes a difference. Ordering from restaurants makes a difference. Wow. Yeah. And so, huh. but help us understand that, not but, but, and help us understand that, Kate, because how sustainable is that for the broad restaurant industry, or is it really just limited to a certain segment? I know you, that we can't give specific numbers or predictions sure. about that, but uh-huh. I do wonder, knowing the mechanics of food and restaurants as well as you do, I mean, how much hope is there for people that that, that really can be at least a, a lifeline? 
It's um, I mean, it's a lifeline. That's exactly the right word. It doesn't. It's not going to support every restaurant. And if you weren't in good shape going into the pandemic, it's not. You are probably not going to be in better shape on the other side of it. But I think the best restaurants and the and the ones that are really going to um, go onward are the ones who have figured out a sort of hybrid model where you know where you have like a food delivery system that works. Maybe a grocery. Or, you know, that kind of grocery delivery thing as well. And in some cases, outdoor dining does seem to be making a little bit of a difference, although we're having very crazy weather in New York. So (laughs) you think you're going to go out to eat at 6 o'clock and then it pours rain at 4. So it couldn't be harder for restaurants right now. Um, But some things like this American Express benefit for small businesses does, I I really think it's going to encourage me to order an extra one or two times, I think. Yeah, I agree with you, um, Kate, because we we talk about it at home all the time. I also do wonder, I know we've had some conversations with, you know, some chefs and well-known chefs that even like the high end is is embracing that takeout community when that wasn't something they did before. No, they haven't. You know, Danny Meyer, certainly, you know, he was so, as you know, he did, he told us sort of dramatically, he didn't think he would reopen, um, before there was a vaccine and now he's really though he's decided that um or probably it was part of his master plan all along but he's um crafting some really cool delivery options and he's also said um actually on bloomberg that he sees like hospitality he thinks people can consider hospitality in a new way that can include how you pick up food from Union Square Cafe, you know, if, it, if you used to define hospitality as being within four walls, it can now be outside those four walls. Right. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting the sort of different way that you react um, or that you can interact, I should say. Uh, Kate, only about 40 seconds left. So what's the outlook for fine dining uh, at this point? Are we still going to see a lot of restaurants close? Um, I, I'm afraid the answer to that is going to be Yes, because they're not, you know, like Daniel Hume told us, it's not, it didn't make sense, people, there wasn't like a huge hunger for 11 Madison Park delivery, nor was he interested in it. But I am, I I think some of these restaurants, in fact, I'm working on a story, um, I think some of these restaurants are finding a different way or a different model that might at least help them, help them like try and make a go of it. Bridge the gap, yeah. Well, fingers crossed, Kate, and we'll look forward to that story as we look forward to all of your reporting that you put out there for Bloomberg Pursuits and uh, Bloomberg uh, Terminal and Bloomberg.com. Kate Crater. We need some socially distanced Kate Crater time. I know. I'm like, I'll go to a park. I'll sit six feet away, yeah, and like I just, we'll just want to have a glass around, of wine like, with her and food, yeah. sit and be Kate Crater, food editor at Bloomberg Pursuits. Check out all of her great work um, on the Bloomberg Terminal and at Bloomberg.com. I'm driving in my car, I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Matt Hanna is with us, portfolio manager and managing director of ESG Investing at Summit Global Investments. They are based in Salt Lake City, and that's exactly where we find Matt on this Tuesday. Matt, nice to have you here on Bloomberg Radio with Jason and myself. First of all, how's it going in Salt Lake City? 
I have a niece there who's a doctor, and so we've been hearing stories, but I'm just curious how your your world is going. Uh, it's going quite, uh, you know, well overall. Uh, COVID cases are picking up, but the weather's nice. Uh, you know, I actually just made it to some national parks in, in Utah recently and got to see some of the sights and some of the beauty. It kind of grounds you a little bit to see, you know, what Mother Nature can do. So, you know, Utah and Salt Lake City is a fantastic place. And you're not feeling maybe some of the effects that some uh, some other places kind of south of you and, and west of you are seeing in terms of a, a surge? Uh, it's not quite as bad as, say, what you're seeing, like, in, in Arizona, in California. But we've definitely seen, you know, pick up in, in say, mask usage. Perhaps not as much as I would like to see. But, uh, mm. you know, people are taking it serious. But, you know, I think, you know, as a country, we still have a ways to go. But... And hopefully we can, you know, band together and overcome. Yeah, I guess, you know, and we hope so, certainly for your case, having lived through it all here in the New York metro area. I do wonder, Matt, how some of this um, shades your view on the economic bounce back, especially as we get ready to, to move into earnings season. And we'll start to hear from CEOs about their business and hopefully we'll hear more about their outlooks. Yeah, certainly. So, you know, the COVID-19 world is certainly a new world for all of us. And we believe it's going to institute some dramatic consumer, you know, shifts and just the uh, workplace shifts as well. But for example, uh, work from home is is not going anywhere. And what does that mean? That means people are going to drive less. But uh, commercial real estate demand is going to be hit. Uh, industrials, uh, in terms of sector, is going to be weaker. And you know, things like restaurants, and entertainment, uh, that that's going to be weaker. And just in terms of just kind of a longer term uh, secular shift coming out of some of these behavioral shifts. But more in the near term, are we going to bounce back? That's, you know, you know, we all hope for a V-shaped recovery, but the long-term history doesn't really provide for such a recovery. For example, even the global financial crisis, it took five years to go from 10% unemployment to 6%. Uh, you know, we're sitting at 11. So, you know, we're, you know, thinking years, not, not months, uh, maybe not five years, but uh, certainly, you know, we're not going to be back down to where we were. Uh, anytime soon. Well, Matt, one place where folks have not had to wait long or really didn't have to wait at all uh, for a rebound was in tech stocks. Talk to us about some of the names that you like there because the likes of Amazon, Microsoft, uh, you know, they've done great, uh, generally speaking. And, you know, this has been an area we talk a lot about it with our stock experts internally and with smart investors like you. I mean, this has just been a phenomenon in a lot of ways. Yeah, so uh, one thing both Microsoft and Amazon have in common is cloud. Uh, that's certainly going to be uh, picking up uh, kind of the initial hit with COVID, kind of delayed some cloud adoption. But in the long term, uh, the COVID world certainly going to bring additional cloud adoption. That's certainly going to benefit big players such as Microsoft and Amazon. In fact, Microsoft actually saw 59% year-over-year growth uh, in March. So we only expect that to accelerate. So you have that aspect. And then they both have other things going for them as well. They take Microsoft, uh, what they call their productivity and business process segment. So think Microsoft Office, Microsoft Teams. I don't know about you guys, but I'm using that type of stuff a lot more than I ever did. For example, my firm, since we've been working from home, we've been using Microsoft Teams. And I know we're not alone in that adoption. That's certainly going to be helping you know, Microsoft. Then Amazon. I think we all know once you go prime, you don't really go back, uh, right. just the, the shipping. Uh, and they're bringing in a lot of new customers. So I'm really anxious to see you yeah. know, 
prime numbers and what they're going to be doing. Uh, you know, they have, they have a lot of COVID expenses, so I'm not necessarily as concerned about uh, kind of near-term quarter, but much more anxious to see are they really bringing in new customers and they converting, uh, you know, trials and whatnot. And I think they are. You know, I have, it's funny. I was I had to pop in to pick up a prescription over the weekend in one of the, I think it was Dwayne Reed or Walgreens or something. And I did think about, it was interesting, a lot of the shelves were empty. But I don't know if you think about this, Jason, like because of the lockdown, like I don't do any of that impulse buying, right? You know, you go in and you go in for a bottle of shampoo and you come out with right. a ton of more things. And I do wonder, but part of me kind of loves that. Just, okay, I need this. I'll buy it. Surgical when, strike. Right. When I need it, it's very much like inventory, you know, uh, you know, just in time. And I, I like kind of buying things that way. And I do wonder, Matt, you know, how you think about how consumers change going forward and what might be some of those lasting trends that ultimately either benefit or hurt an Amazon in the long term? Well, I don't know about you, but I've been doing those impulse buys on Amazon. You know, I'm taking a look at my own credit card statements and seeing Amazon, 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 Amazon <laughs> as I'm doing uh, these small you know, impulse buys. But from a kind of you know, brick-and-mortar retail standpoint, overall, we like the bigger players. So think more like your Walmarts and Targets and Costcos of the world much more than your smaller niche retailers. Uh, and, you know, ultimately, uh, we think those smaller retailers are going to have uh, quite a bit of trouble, uh, both competing against the bigger boxes and, and, you know, e-commerce, but also just, frankly, you know, the COVID world. And they're just, they don't have to scale to, to ship the way Walmarts and Amazons do. So uh, they, they might be in quite a bit of trouble. But the, the bigger box retailers, uh, you know, Walmart's up quite a bit today. Last I checked, it was about 6%. They should do uh, quite well. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, interesting discussion. Thank you so much for your insights, Matt Hanna, Portfolio Manager, Managing Director of ESG Investing for Summit Global Investments, joining us on the phone from beautiful Salt Lake City. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.